Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verse 12. Except that my whole introduction is not about verse 12. And the introduction is about a third of the length of the sermon. Yeah, you heard me right, but I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, celebration, we had another family go through our uh, discovery class this morning, wanting to join our church. Uh, one of them went on, uh, had, uh, had somewhere to go, so she's not here, so I'm going to actually wait to announce them next week. Somebody remind me to do that next week because it's fresh on my mind now, and, and I'll forget in seven days. I'll forget in one day, okay? just So remind me to do that next week to introduce them. Um, to you. Uh, most of you, some of you probably know them already, but that's all right. We're, I'm, shh, surprise. Okay. Our memory verse this morning. Let's say it together. Uh, yeah, it's missing some words. And I didn't, I didn't brush up on it prior to this moment, so we'll see how I do. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 14. Yeah, that's a good one. It's a helpful verse for this morning, though it's more tangential to what we're going to be talking about. Believing is following. We had believing is seeing two weeks ago. Believing is drinking Last week, not about living water, right? This week it's believing is following. Looking at verse 12. But I want to talk to you a little bit about all the verses that come before that. 7.53 through 8.11. Now, I'm going to talk for a long time about something I'm not going to preach on. Why in the world are you doing that, Michael? I believe this is part of discipleship. This is part of understanding our Bible. How, how we got our English translation of our, in this case, Greek New Testament. The Greek writings from, in this case, John. Our reading this week included all of chapter 8. So you read about, and if you want your fancy Greek words for the day... Pericope adulterae. I expect you to use that this week. Pericope adulterae. just means the adultery section, if you want the translation. It included that. This, this woman caught in adultery. And unless you use the King James Bible, you in some way have that section, 753 through 811, bracketed off. Um brackets in it, some sort of lines above it. Some translations, I think, actually take it and put it in the footnotes. Yours does that, puts it in the footnotes. Okay, uh, which one did you have? The King James puts it in the footnotes. Uh, that's interesting. I, I didn't know any of the King James versions took it out. Okay, well, the reason, and, and this is... Uh, why I want to talk to you about this, and 
we, Bart Barber, a friend of mine in, in Texas who's a pastor over there, he's the president of the convention too right now, but I knew him before that. He, uh, he preached on this passage a few years back, and, and, and he actually took 15 minutes to explain it before he preached on it, and so I'm, I'm following in his footsteps here. Uh, we need to understand, and he put it well, we're not scared of brackets in our English translation. As he told his congregation, if I ignore it, then it's like, well, we don't talk about that. You know, it's, if, if, we, if we talk about it, then there might be some problem or some mistake or something we're fearful about. We're not. We come to the Bible uh, with our eyes wide open and, and, and understanding, hopefully, how we got what we have. Okay, so this section is not in the earliest manuscripts of the Bible. And I'll tell you what that means in just a minute. The reason your King James Bibles have it, or most of them still have it in there, is because the King James English version of the Bible, remember we didn't even have English Bible, uh, Bibles in English until 1500s. William Tyndale, if I remember my Christian history correctly, was the first to translate the Bible into English, and everybody was so happy with him about that, they killed him for it. Can you imagine being killed for translating the Bible into English? He was, because you couldn't, you couldn't make an English translation of the Bible. It had to be, in that circumstance, Latin. So the King James comes along 60 years later or so, I think, and they used the earliest Greek and Hebrew, uh, Hebrew manuscripts that they had. Uh, 11th and 12th century, 1000s or 1000s and 1100s AD. Uh, the, the Old Testament, the oldest manuscript they had was from the 11th century. It was called the Masoretic Texts. And the uh, New Testament was from the uh, 12th century, the 1100s, and it was called the Textus Receptus. Now, when we're looking at manuscripts of the Bible, when you, I, I use this example, uh, I think in a sermon, I know I use it with somebody, about um, To Kill a Mockingbird, that book. Did I use that in a sermon? I see blank stares, so I must not have. Okay, so To Kill a Mockingbird was uh, written in the 50s, I believe. And most of us read that in, in school, right? If you didn't, sorry, it's a great book. A good movie, too. Uh, you know, Gregory Peck and all that. Um, so we've had that book now for 70 years, let's say, or so. And we've all read it. Now, if in 30 years you decided, you know what, I'm going to read that book again. And you go, you don't have a copy of it, so you go to the bookstore and you, you buy it. And you open that book up and you start reading. And you notice that when it starts talking about Atticus, it says he was really tall, had black hair, reminiscent of that famous actor named Gregory Peck, and goes on. Well, if you've read the book before, you realize, well, that wasn't in the original. So what are you going to do? Well, you're going to start digging around. Do I still have that book from high school? You're going to go back to an earlier source and realize, 
I didn't think that was in there. They added that later on to explain it, to, to give us an image of who Gregory Peck was. You go to the earliest source. In this case, for, for To Kill a Mockingbird, the, the book that was published right after Harper Lee wrote it. And maybe you're lucky enough, you can find a handwritten manuscript of To Kill a Mockingbird. Okay, you kind of have that in your idea, in, that idea in your head now. The same thing happens with the Bible. We want the earliest manuscript of the Bible to make sure that what we have is accurate. Because over the course of now 2,000 years, people would hand, uh, it, printing press was what? 1400s, somebody help me, history people. They copied the Bible by hand. And sometimes people who were copying the Bible by hand would come to a place that was confusing, and over here in the margin, they'd write, you know, Jesus, in case you don't know which Jesus that is, of Nazareth. Well, over time, people began to think, oh, that of Nazareth that they wrote in the margin was actually part of the original. So they began to include that, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, it doesn't change the meaning of the text at all, but it is an addition to the original. So then you go back and you find one that's older and you go, oh, it didn't used to say of Nazareth right there. And we want the most accurate so we don't put of Nazareth in there. You following with me? Okay. The earliest near complete gospel of John that we have now is from 200 to 250 A.D. 150 years or so after, uh, 150 to 200 years after Jesus walked the earth, and about that from the time uh, John wrote it, 150 years from the time John wrote it. That's the earliest manuscript we have of John, which means it's a copy of however many copies. We don't have what John wrote. The earliest even little bit that we have of John is a fragment of chapter 18. It's a fragment of the verse, and it's a piece of paper like this big. But we know it's a, it's a part of John. That's how well the Bible has been preserved. So this should actually encourage you that what we have is God's Word. The earliest complete New Testament, not just complete version of John... But the complete New Testament that we have is from 400 A.D. Now, the interesting thing about, or about 400 A.D., the interesting thing is in that 200 to 250 A.D. version of John and that 400 A.D. complete New Testament, in neither of those do we find the story of the woman caught in adultery. It actually doesn't show up until the 5th century. There are uh, guys who preached through the Bible from 200s, 300s, that wrote down their sermons, and they preached through the entire book, basically like I, I, we like to do, like I like to do. Um, I'm not doing it exactly that way as we preach through the, the curriculum, but just they would verse by verse. Those early preachers, when they preach, they never talked about this woman caught in adultery. They never preached about it. didn't show up. It didn't show up in sermons until the 5th century, uh, the mid-400s to late-400s A.D. When it does show up, 
this, this passage, when it does show up in the Bible, sometimes it shows up here. Sometimes it shows up in three other locations in the book of John. And sometimes it shows up in Luke. This whole section just kind of jumps around through the years. In this spot in John, it doesn't make logical sense. It messes up the flow. You, you have the, the Pharisees being talked to, or the, the, the group being talked to, them uh, leaving, coming back the next day, woman in adultery the next day, and it, it adds a day here that doesn't fit the flow if we jump from 11 or 7.52 to 8.12. So it, it's, it's awkward right here, Okay. It also doesn't fit John's purpose. John's gospel is seven miraculous signs and then statements uh, about Jesus that Jesus makes about himself. And it's, it's organized that way. This passage doesn't have those things. It's not a miraculous sign. He, he doesn't teach about himself. It's, it, it's uh, more about how we should be. As I said, the, the earliest expository preachers didn't preach it. Uh, they, they skip it as if it wasn't there. Eusebius, who was a church historian, and he wrote in the 300s A.D., he mentions that a guy named Papias, you don't have to remember, remember these names, they won't be on the test. He mentions that a guy named Papias, who was a dis direct disciple of John, Okay, somebody who was discipled by John the Evangelist, Gospel of John writer. He mentions the story of the woman caught in adultery around 100 A.D. Okay, now I, I want you to, I'm going to stop here for just a second. It's not written in any of the Gospel accounts that we have up to 500 A.D. But in 100 A.D., the story is being talked about. They know the story. That's in 300, writing about a dude in 100. There's an instruction book that was written for bishops in the 200s AD, and the author mentions this story while telling the bishops, as in, using the story as an example, to be forgiving to others. So the story is mentioned in the 200s, but it's not found in any of the Bibles, any of the, the manuscripts. And then, as I said, the, the, the story, but not in its place in John, is mentioned a couple other times by a few other people in the 300s. Okay, not in the original scripture, but talked about. So what's the point? What, what, why does this matter? Well, we need to understand, I believe, that this passage, this story of the adulterous woman, was not in the originally inspired scripture. It wasn't in what John, or God told John through the Holy Spirit to write down. But it obviously was a story that was out there, that was talked about, that John actually talked about. And this isn't surprising because at the end of this gospel John says look y'all if I wrote down everything Jesus did and said there aren't enough books in the world to hold everything 
So you can imagine he wrote this because he had a purpose, he had a point, he was writing to a particular group. The story wasn't in there. But then in his teaching, in his discipling of Papias, and there was another fellow by the name of Polycarp that uh, was a direct disciple of his that wrote a lot in that time, and we have some of his stuff. He's teaching, he's he's saying this is scripture, this is what we're going to learn but let me tell you some other things that Jesus did. Because you'd want to talk about that, right? This is all I could write, but gosh, there's so much more. Let me tell you about this story. And this and this. And there was this woman Can you, that, that the guys brought. Okay. So what is this? It's a true story of Jesus, sovereignly preserved to, as again, my friend Bart said in his introduction, get us excited about all the other stories that we're going to hear when we get to heaven. We will get to hear and meet maybe this adulterous woman. Maybe this was a life-changing event for her. The story doesn't say. It doesn't tell us if she converted, followed him, or anything like that. Just, he says, go and sin no more. Maybe she's there. Maybe we get to hear the story from her directly. But we will definitely get to hear these stories about Jesus that John didn't write about, and Luke didn't write about, and Mark, and, 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 and Matthew, we're going to sit for eternity and be regaled. And maybe that's the wrong word. We're going to be in awe of what all Jesus did that we don't know about right now. Now, if I were preaching John verse by verse, and if I'd started at the beginning and I was just moving through it, I wouldn't skip this. I would preach it. But I would preach it the same way that John apparently preached it, as a true story about Jesus, but not inspired scripture. I'd have told you all of this if I were preaching it this Sunday. But because we read it, and because almost all of you would have seen those those brackets and probably read your little footnote about manuscripts not having it, I wanted to address that this morning so you could be confident That when we come to Scripture, we have the Scripture that Jesus wanted us to have. We have what the Gospel writers wrote for us, the the biblical writers wrote for us. And then you have some understanding about how we got to where we are. And to our English translation, depending on what you have, my Christian standard version of the Bible, the, the, the one I prefer. That's how we got where we are. All right, there's the introduction to the sermon that's not about the sermon at all. Today, and I think today's sermon will help you see the flow and how this passage messes up the flow of John. Today I'm preaching the light of Jesus. I'm preaching the uninterrupted conversation Jesus is still having at the temple. We left it last week, this conversation at the temple about water, and then the ensuing uh, debate, we'll say argument, that Jesus had through the end of chapter 7, 752. And then if we are logically consistent, we jump right here to this passage where the conversation is continuing. In the midst of this festival, of, of uh, this feast of, of tents, the, the, the uh, fe- festival of tabernacles, where they are pouring out water every day, uh, Jesus up and says, I'm the light of the world. Believing is seeing. 
he's told them. Believing is drinking, he's told them. And today he tells them believing, well, just a few minutes later, he tells them believing is following. So what's our big idea this morning? To come to the light of Jesus is to commit to a lifetime of following. Just this one verse. We're going to tack on some things as we uh, move through it. But just this one verse, to come to the light of Jesus is to commit to a lifetime of following. That's what he's going to tell them. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me. John 8, 12. Let me read it the way Jesus said it. Jesus spoke to them again. You see the continuity of the conversation? Jesus spoke to them again. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. First thing Scripture tells us is that Jesus said to them again. We need to hear the message often. If you went back and watched that clip uh, of... um, Alistair Begg, the, the preacher that I, I told you about, you, uh, you see that he began the, the message, is it not moving forward? Are we having trouble, Emma? There we go. Well, that's not the right Move forward one slide. There we go. That's where we are. I don't know what's wrong with it. Uh, if you remember, if you watch that clip that, uh, about Alistair Begg, he, that message, and, and that, the clip that I'm talking about is the one where he was talking about the, the thief on the cross when he gets to heaven saying, the man in the middle said I could come. The, the beginning of that little three and a half minute clip was him saying, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. His point was that we, as we grow in our faith, and we don't preach just the basic gospel to ourselves, we don't keep reminding of ourselves, he he will say we either grow arrogant in thinking that we somehow did something to be saved, or we grow despondent in thinking that we aren't going to be able to maintain our salvation for some reason. The, the middle ground is that we didn't do anything to save ourselves and we don't do anything to preserve our salvation. Jesus does it all. And we have to hear that over and over. In this case, Jesus is telling the, the Pharisees, uh, the, 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 actually the group of people, He's saying to them again, because the Pharisees, uh, back at the end of chapter 7, the servants have gone to tell them, that's, that's when they told the, the folks, we've never heard anybody preach like this, teach like this. This is, this is not anything we're uh, familiar with or used to. And so Jesus tells the crowd again, because we need to hear it often. Jesus spoke to them Again, unbelievers need to hear the gospel message a lot. Statistically, 
An unbeliever has to hear the gospel 13 times before they respond to it. 13 times. The message has to be repeated. Believers need to hear the call to follow a lot. We have to be reminded regularly to follow Jesus, to be obedient to Jesus. It's why, though we might find it somewhat monotonous and redundant and repetitive, but I repeat myself, to go through a passage of Scripture, particularly when we are working through Paul's letters, where he says something, and then just a few verses later, he says it again, and then just a few verses later, he reminds them of what he's already said. And we go, Paul, we get it. No, we don't. If we got it, we'd be perfect. We have to constantly be reminded to hear the call to follow Jesus. We write songs about how we need it, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. We, we read in Revelation, John again, by the Holy Spirit, writing to the seven churches, to, one, to the church, I believe, in Ephesus. You've left your first love. You were prone to wander, and you did. We've got to be reminded So Jesus said to them again. And he spoke to them the message of the true light. Now he's already told them he was water. Now he says, I am the light of the world. As I told you last week, one of the, the ceremonies of the seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles was the pouring out of the water every day. I also told you that every night they lit lamps all throughout the city, or at least throughout the, the area where the tents were set up, to commemorate, to remind them of the, the pillar of smoke and, by day and the pillar of fire by night, that led them through the wilderness for 40 years. And it didn't just lead them, but they followed. They didn't see it and go, oh, that's God over there. All right, bye. But they followed that light. This idea of light is nothing new to, to Scripture. John very likely would have taught at this point multiple Old Testament passage that talked ab- passages that talked about light, God being the source of all light in Genesis 1:3. God as the light of life in Psalm 56:13. And if you want to write these down and go back and read them, you can. Um, I'm not going to quote them all. Genesis 1-3, Psalm 56-13. Light is God's victory, or light is described as God's victory over the traumas of life in Psalm 37-6 and Psalm 44-3. Darkness is overcome by God as described in Psalm 139-12 or Isaiah 4-7. God's light is is salvation in Psalm 27.1 and Isaiah 58.8. The 
The people would have known this. They'd have been taught these things through the years. They would have known when Jesus references light, or when any teacher references light, that they were talking about, in a spiritual conversation anyway, God and Him being light and His light being salvation over everything. And then Jesus says, I am the light. He might as well have just said, I am God. <laughs> he's going to, and he has. But that's what he's saying one more time. Jesus is saying that he is all of those things. The Genesis passage, the Psalm passages, the Isaiah passages. He is not a conduit for the light. He's not a bulb that holds the electricity that burns the filament that gives light. But he is actually the light himself. He is the light. He is absolutely, without a doubt, one more time claiming to be God. And we cannot get away from that fact. And the Pharisees knew it. And they ain't going to be happy about it here in just a few verses. But this shouldn't be a surprise to the, this wasn't a surprise to the readers of John, and it shouldn't be a surprise to you now. John chapter 1, verses 4 through 10, the, the lead up to our memory verse. In Him, in the Word, in the Logos, in Jesus, the Word becoming flesh, in Him was life. And that life was the light of men. John would write this by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knowing he had already heard Jesus say this in the temple that day. That light, verse 5, shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, in this case the Baptist, not the gospel writer. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. John the Baptist was a conduit. He was not the light. Verse 8, he was not the light, in case you're wondering where I got that. But he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. But he, he doesn't stop there. In chapter 3, after the conversation with Nicodemus, after John records the conversation with Nicodemus, John continues to write verse 19 of chapter 3, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil uh, hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth, remember our, sermons, uh, our series title is The Truth to Believe. For anyone, uh, but anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. 
John told us he was the light already. And then we come to this passage where Jesus says, and where John got it, I am the light. Jesus is telling the people, you followed the light for your salvation, or our ancestors followed the light for their salvation. Today, we do not have a a pillar of smoke or a pillar of fire to follow. I am, he is saying, the only true salvation. These I am statements, and he's said it a bunch. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. He's leading up to something, and, and the something is coming in verse 58, where the Pharisees question him, what do you know about Abraham? You weren't around when Abraham was here. You're not even 50 years old. And Jesus answers, before Abraham was, I am. He just took on the covenant name of God. These are people that would not write the covenant name of God, Yahweh. They, that, that Yahweh isn't even exactly how you would write it. We don't know how you would write it because that was the way they wrote it so they wouldn't have to write it the way God said it. And even when they came to writing that name, the, 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 the nickname for the covenant name, They would go and cleanse themselves ritually before they wrote it and after they wrote it because it was so holy and important to them. And Jesus stands before them and says, I am. Jesus has left no doubt about who he is. This is very likely the boldest claim of his to be God, to take on the covenant name of God. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And that call, that true light, is to everyone. It is a call to all. He says to them, anyone who follows me. The invitation is open. I'm the light. We know John 1 The light came in the world, the world didn't receive, and they loved darkness more than the light. But anyone who will come to the light, he says, the invitation is open. Believing is following. Anyone who follows me. See, you can't have one without the other. You can't have believing without following. Another way we would say that is you can't have Jesus as Savior, but not have him as Lord. Uh, Shane Pruitt just put out a a statement, a a Twitter, Facebook, social media thing um, yesterday, the day before, and I'm I'm not going to remember it exactly the way he said it, but we want Jesus for eternity as long as he doesn't mess with our right now. Well, that's wanting him as Savior, but not as Lord. We don't get that. That's not the option. That's not the way it works. Believing is following. Just like the Israelites followed the the pillar of fire and smoke, they didn't wake up the next morning in the wilderness and go, all right, y'all, where are we going to go today? 
Well, we, let's, let's call a meeting, have a committee, a couple of committees, to decide you know, how we're going to do it and then where we're going to go. Because you've got to have as many committees as possible. Um, then we'll decide what we're going to do, and, 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 we'll, and, and we'll see, Lord, are you going to bless this? This is the way we're going. Will you? That's not how they, they got up, and where'd the pillar of, of, of fire go, or where'd the pillar of smoke go? Well, that's where they went. They followed. With, with full apologies to Fleetwood Mac, you don't get to go your own way. Nope, you go God's way. You follow. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Did we sing that this morning? No, okay. No, that's okay. For some reason, it's been in my head all week, I guess, because of this. And I I just, like, randomly thought that that ten minutes ago we sang a song that we didn't. That's why I'm not going to remember to recognize the people that went through the discovery class this morning next week i can't remember 30 minutes later so i'm not going to remember seven days so if we don't get to go our own way if we have the 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 light that we are supposed to follow we then have no excuse for getting off the road we've we've got the, the the thing in front of us we have the light why are we over here? If the light's over there, why are we pointed this direction? If that's where he is, why is this where we are? It can only be because of disobedience. And Jesus doesn't hide from you. The light's not under a bushel. No. Right? It's obvious. He's there. He doesn't make himself scarce. He doesn't hide behind things. It's, it's not some, some celestial, demonic hide-and-seek. Well, if you don't find me, you go to hell. Ha, ha, ha. That's not Jesus. The light came into darkness. If you go into a pitch-black room, if you remember when we do the, the Tenebrae service at Easter over in the Activity Center, have we done it two years now? We're planning on doing it the third year. We can actually get the activity center pretty dadgum dark. Like, almost no light in there. What happens when that first candle comes from the back of the room? Do y'all notice it? Is it rather obvious? I don't know. I'm carrying it, so it's right there. I, I'm, I can't see anything. It's too close to me. But, but do you struggle to see the light? I mean, even if you wear glasses or contacts, you take those off. It's a really blurry light now, but you still see the light, don't you? That's the way light works in darkness. Darkness can't overcome it. So if you don't see Jesus, you're not looking. Because he's not hiding. He's not hiding from you. The call is to all, anyone who follows me. I'm the light in the darkness. Open your eyes. You'll see him. The call to all from the light. The true light. And then he talks about the constant presence. Those who follow me, 
anyone who follows me, will never walk in the darkness. You know why he's not hiding from you? Because he will never leave you. As a believer, he, he can't hide from you when he's right next to you. He's in you. You will never not have direction as a believer, as a follower of Jesus. You will never not have hope as a follower of Jesus. You will never not have salvation as a follower of Jesus. He's right there. He has not left. He has not moved. If you don't see him, believer, it's because you're doing this. And you're hoping, just like when you were three years old, that if you do this, he can't see you either. We all know it doesn't work that way, right? Still sees you. But you hiding your eyes from him doesn't mean he's gone anywhere. He's a constant presence and he will never leave you. You will never walk in darkness. Also means you'll never have an excuse for getting off the road. That light then, that constantly present light, the, the true light, the one that calls us all is the light for us and others. He says to them, but we'll have the light of life. He will never leave us. We will never walk in the darkness, but we'll have the light of life. So my analogy of him standing right here isn't quite right. We, we have it. We're not next to it. So it is an eternal thing. He's already said that the, spring of, uh, the water will be uh, a spring of life flowing up out of us. The light's the same way. Oh... I know I reference movies a lot, and this is a, a, just like the, the treasure hunter where they light one little thing and it eventually lights up the whole room. A, a common trope in, in movies about possession or that sort of thing, or even if it's not possession, they, they swallow something, something gets it down in them, and then they start glowing from the inside. They open their eyes and their mouth, and it's all light, and you know I, I can picture it in my head, but I can't think of the movie what the, uh, that it was. That is an image of what Jesus does. I, we, uh, in X-Men, y'all all know X-Men, right? In X-Men, they're, they're all mutants and they have these crazy powers. There's one by the name of Cyclops. He has two eyes. So go figure. But he can't open his eyes. If he does, it shoots powerful laser beam thingies and destroys anything he looks at. So he has to wear special glasses to hold it back. And then when he wants to, to shoot you with his eyes, his laser eyes, inside joke with our third son on that one, who's asleep apparently. Um, 
He flips them up. He can't control it. He can't stop the light from coming out of his eyes. If he opens his eyes, they come out. Doesn't blow his eyelids off. He's lucky that way. Y'all, we shouldn't be able to control the light coming out of us. And we shouldn't want the fancy glasses that hide it. Oh, we like to wear those glasses some places, don't we? And in some situations. Can't see me, Jesus. But when we open our eyes, when we open our mouths, the light should shine. It, it, it should be like a, a, a headlamp. I don't know, maybe scripture says something about it. Like a, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. A light for every step we take in our journey toward eternity. The light is in us and it lights our way. We're not following. I mean, we're following, right? We have a direction. But Jesus isn't just out in front, out there, distant, and we're running. Oh, I'll catch up with him now. And then... We get there and, oh, he's moved on, kind of like rainbows and mirages do. We, we are almost there. Ah, it moved on. We never found the pot of gold. Y'all, we found the pot of gold. We're not chasing down Jesus, hoping the light in the distance that we'll someday catch. We have him, and we will never be without him. So yes, we are both following the light, but the light is in us and lighting where we go. It's more of a maybe yellow brick road kind of thing or, or special glasses that only we can see the path. Looks just like a normal road to everybody else, but we know this is where Jesus is telling us to go because we're looking with lit up eyes. The light within us is lighting our path. Now, you, you biblical scholars will know that the light to our a lamp to our feet and the light to our path is referencing not Jesus but the word. Oh, hold on. Not only does the light light our path, but we glow with it. We are a light for others to see. Jesus told us that. What are we? The light of the world. Now, he just says, I'm the light of the world. But doesn't he say somewhere, you are the light of the world? And what does he say about the light of the world? A city on a hill cannot be... And when you light a lamp, you don't put it under something. You don't hide it under a bushel, no. You put it on a lampstand to light the whole room. That's us. A city on a hill, a lamp on the lampstand. We aren't the light, but we are conduits of the light. Just like John the Baptist. Except I'm Michael the Baptist. And you're Christy the Baptist. And you're Etta the Baptist. But we got brothers and sisters. John the Methodist and John the Presbyterian. and All over. On and on and on and on. That are the light, conduits of the light. 
jump quickly to verse 31. It's just a good wrap-up verse. After some arguing and debating, verse 31, Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. Verse 31 tells us the proof of our discipleship is in our continuing in his word. Our continuing in following. Your word. If I continue in your word, I am your disciple. And you, the light of the world, will be a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And I will be a city on a hill, seen by everyone I come into contact with. I will be a light on a lampstand, lighting up the whole room. Let me just say one more time, y'all. This is why we read the Bible through over and over and over. Because then you're able... To pull verses. Remember, oh, Jesus talked about this here. And Jesus said that here. And it is all coming together with this verse. You're able to cross-reference. That's what we call it in the Bible. Cross-references tells you this verse talks about this verse. and this. Thing. You're able to do that as you go. Because you've read God's word. You've spent time in it. You've meditated on it. There's my discipleship commercial. If we continue in his word, we are his disciples. That begins with coming to him, believing, believing that he is the light, following him, following him in obedience. He was baptized, not because he needed it, but because he was showing us the example. So we follow him in obedience, in baptism, the first obedience. He said, go and make disciples and baptize them. It's a command for all believers to be baptized. If we continue in his word, then we join a community of faith, a family, a church family where we will grow in our faith, where we will be discipled, where we will be preached to, where we will study God's word in small groups as many times as possible. We will be disciples, disciplers, and we will be discipled. We come to the light, and we show the light to someone else. To come to the light of Jesus is to commit to a lifetime of following. This morning, I pray that you will make Jesus both your Lord and Savior. And if you've thought, well, I've done one but not the other, then you've really done neither. And if you've come to him halfway, come all the way. Anyone who comes to him will have the light. And that light will never, ever leave you. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. We, the darkness that we are in is our sin. And in the midst of that sin, in the midst of the darkness, the light came. And we love the darkness. It hurts to turn on the light when it's been dark, right? 
This means yes. You, you, you get up in the morning, somebody wakes you up by flipping on the lights in the room. After you shoot them, you turn the light off because it hurts. When the light is turned on to our sin, it hurts. And we love that darkness. It's comfortable. But the light came. That darkness is our sin. And the result of that sin of living in darkness is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. The light that shines in the darkness. That rids ourselves, rids our lives of sin. That's the Jesus you can come to. That's the Jesus who is saying come to the light and this morning you have a step to take you have a next step to take whoever you are however long you've been in church been a believer haven't been a believer maybe you need to accept salvation through Jesus Christ you need to be you need to come to the light maybe you've come to the light but you've never been baptized that's just part of your obedience and you need to be baptized you need to come forward and say I want to follow in obedience Believer, maybe you need to conform your life to Christ. You've, he's over there, and you're over here. He never left you. You left him. You got off his path. Here's, here's the great thing, and, 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 and I know I'm, I'm, I'm over. When, when Peter stepped out of the boat... Onto the waves, going toward the light. We'll just say it that way. As long as he focused on the light, he could do it. He could walk on the water with the storm going. He could do it. But as soon as he took his focus off the light, he began to sink. He he got off the road, the path. Whatever metaphor you want to use, he he began to sink in the water. Jesus was over there. He was going to where Jesus was. And he began to sink. And he cried out. And as scripture portrays it, there wasn't this amount of time as Jesus made his way through the waves and through the wind and got to Peter. It was the instant he cried out, Jesus was there pulling him up. Believer, you may think he's over there. And you may be sinking. You may be off the path. And you turn and you look and he seems so distant from you right now. But if you cry out, if you call to him this morning, He's there. He is not distant. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have, not just see, not just be able to make out, but will have the light of life. Father, we thank you that the light never leaves us. We thank you that 
No matter how prone to wander we are and how far we may and do wander, no matter how distant it appears Jesus is, it's like we're looking at him through binoculars backwards. Oh, it looks far off, but we take those things that are messing up our vision away and he's right there. God, when we take the sin away that's messing up our vision, we find that he is right there. He has never left us and he never will. God, may those who have been wandering return to him this morning. May the anyones this morning who have never come to Jesus, may they follow him today. Believing is following. You've heard the messages They've heard the gospel. Lord, this morning, may they not just give mental assent to it, but may they believe and internalize and follow and continue in his word and truly be his disciples. God, in the next few minutes, may you work on every heart here, believer and unbeliever alike, so that each one takes that next step whatever that step is that you have for them, because you are going to light their path to show them what that next step is. The true light has come into the world. Thank you, Jesus, for shining in our darkness. And we pray it in your name. Amen. So this morning, what is your next step? What is your decision? We're going to take a few minutes. Maybe one of these is something you need to do. If you like prayer about what's going on in your life I'll be up here to my right Chelsea will be to my front we have a couple of deacons in the back that would love to pray with you whatever your decision is this morning let us know let us rejoice with you let us pray for you pray with you this morning whether it's the first time or the 10,000th time follow the light let's stand and sing and worship today